Hello, I'm television's Dara Breen, and I learned everything I know about comedy from the Jodcast. The Jodcast. We don't know the offside rule either. With Megan Argo, John Field, Jen Gupta, Evan Keane, Ian Morrison, and Mark Perver. The Jodcast. February 2011 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Jen Gupta and joining me today again is Evan Keane. Hi Evan. Hi everybody. So, how did everyone like our intro this time? Yes, we decided <laughs> to change it up. Yeah, so most people will be aware that Dave has stopped the parody intro outros, so we thought we'd see how many celebrities... As we're really well hooked up yes, well, in Evan, celeb circles. Evan seems to know all the celebrities, so we thought we would see how many celebrities we could get to do an intro outro. So... If you're a celebrity and you're listening to the Jogcast, because I'm sure we have a lot of celebrity listeners. Of course we do. Um, email us and let us know if you want to record one. If you know any celebrities, please go and ask them if they would record an intro-outro. But don't stalk them. Please don't stalk them. We don't want any Jogcast-related restraining orders. If you can do an impression of a celebrity, can yeah, we that, that would probably work. That would yeah. work. All right. So, yes, new intro-outros. Let's see how long they can last for. Uh, in the show this time, we have interviews about the early universe and buckyballs in space, and we find out what you can see in the night sky in February. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, a roundup of some highlights from the 217th meeting of the American Astronomical Society held in Seattle during January. The annual meetings of the AAS are the largest gatherings of astronomers on the planet, and the presentations cover topics across the whole field of astronomy and astrophysics, including observational results, theoretical studies, and simulations. Here are some of the highlights from this year's meeting. Starting big, astronomers working on the Sloan Digital Sky Survey released the largest colour map of the sky ever made. It's freely available, but be warned, it's big. Covering a third of the sky and created from millions of 2.8 megapixel images, obtained by a dedicated 2.5 metre telescope over the last decade, the full image is more than a terapixel in size. That's more than one trillion pixels. But it's not just a pretty picture. The full data release, the eighth from the SDSS project, contains a catalogue of objects, as well as spectra, allowing astronomers anywhere in the world to use the data as the basis for a diverse range of investigations into questions of galaxy evolution, dark matter and dark energy, the distribution and motion of stars in our own galaxy, and much, much more. One use for sky surveys like the SDSS is searching for distant galaxies which can tell us about star and galaxy formation in the early universe. Because they are so far away, these first galaxies appear very faint by the time their light reaches us here on Earth. But there is a way round this. Gravitational lensing is the effect whereby the matter in a foreground galaxy can bend the light of a background object, making it appear distorted and magnified. This can be a helpful effect, allowing astronomers to see objects more distant than would otherwise be possible, but in surveys where the aim is to discover the size and brightness distributions of early galaxies, this effect can confuse the results. At the AAS meeting, a team of astronomers led by Stuart Wythe at the University of Melbourne have estimated that as many as 20% of the most distant galaxies currently detected appear brighter than they actually are, because of this lensing effect. With deeper surveys planned in order to probe the early universe, this lensing effect means that the best place to look for these primitive galaxies is probably near larger foreground galaxies, but understanding the lensing effects will be crucial to determining accurate statistics. Closer to home, spiral galaxies like the Milky Way often have numerous satellite galaxies orbiting around them. Over time, these galaxies slowly spiral inwards and are eventually disrupted, becoming streams of stars that are often only detectable in large surveys. Others are just too dim to see. But Sukanya Chakrabarti, a researcher at the University of California, has developed a new method of detecting such companions. These dwarf galaxies may be too small and dim to be seen directly, but their mass affects the surrounding regions of their parent galaxies, causing ripples in the clouds of hydrogen within the spiral arms. Chakrabarti's method uses these ripples to infer the mass and location of otherwise invisible dwarf galaxies, and has already been used to infer the existence of an undiscovered dwarf on the opposite side of the Milky Way to the Earth. The technique has also been tested on spiral galaxies in the nearby universe, while high-resolution radio observations can map the hydrogen gas in detail, and her method has correctly predicted the location of the companion to the Whirlpool galaxy, M51. Many galaxies are spirals, like our own Milky Way, 
containing large reservoirs of gas from which stars are currently being formed, while others, so-called early-time galaxies, are largely devoid of gas and no longer producing stars. One of the current problems with our understanding of galaxy evolution is just how galaxies move from the spiral star-forming phase to the gas-poor, red-and-dead phase of ellipticals. In a poster presented at the AAS meeting, a team have discovered that one particular elliptical galaxy is rapidly shedding molecular gas from its core. The galaxy, NGC 1266, located in the constellation of Eridanus, is pumping out some 13 solar masses worth of molecular gas each year, at speeds up to 400 kilometers per second. Such a strong outflow could completely strip the galaxy of molecular gas required to form stars in just 100 million years, about 1% of the age of the Milky Way. Many galactic outflows are driven by powerful star formation activity, but in this case there is little star formation occurring, and the more likely culprit is a central black hole. The question of which came first, galaxies or the supermassive black holes at their cores, is an ongoing debate in astrophysics. There is a direct relation between the mass of a spiral galaxy's central bulge of stars and that of its supermassive black hole, suggesting that black holes and bulges affected each other's growth. Previous studies have found galaxies in the early universe where the black holes were more massive than this relationship would suggest, implying that black holes came first. Now, astronomers have discovered a dwarf galaxy with a central supermassive black hole, but no central bulge of stars, which they say strengthens the case that black holes did come first. This dwarf galaxy has an irregular shape, and strong radio and X-ray emission characteristic of outflows from the region around a black hole, and is likely to be similar to the first galaxies which formed in the early universe. Black holes are not all supermassive. GRS 1915 plus 105 is a binary system in the Milky Way, with a black hole just 14 times the mass of the Sun, feeding on material from a companion star. As material from the companion spirals towards the black hole, it forms an X-ray emitting disk, with material at its inner edge travelling at speeds up to 50% of the speed of light. Observations of the system at certain times show short pulses of X-rays being emitted every 50 seconds. Now, using a combination of observations from the Chandra X-ray Observatory and the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer, a team think they know what's going on. In this phase, the inner region of the disk emits enough radiation to push material away from the black hole. Eventually, the disk gets so bright and so hot that it disintegrates and falls towards the black hole, before the cycle begins again. Between pulses, the inner part of the disk refills from material further away from the black hole, while the radiation emitted heats up the outer disk and drives material away from the system, eventually limiting the amount of matter which the black hole can consume and pushing the system into one of its other known states. More well-known periodic objects are pulsars, compact remnants left over when stars larger than eight times the mass of the Sun end their lives as supernovae. One of the brightest and well-observed pulsars lies in the heart of the Crab Nebula in Taurus, a pulsar which has long been thought of as one of the steadiest high-energy sources in the sky, so steady, in fact, that X-ray telescopes use it as a calibrator, and the brightness of other sources are often quoted in units of millicrabs. But now, observations made with several high-energy instruments have revealed that the Crab pulsar is far less steady than has been assumed. Observations with the gamma-ray burst monitor on the Fermi satellite suggested that the Crab pulsar was dimming, but to prove it was a real effect rather than an instrumental problem affecting the observations, the team made further observations with several other high-energy instruments, confirming that the pulsar has dimmed by 7% over two years. The result has implications for the in-flight calibration of X-ray instruments, as well as possible effects on previous results where the crab pulsar was used to calibrate the observations. And it's not just pulsars which vary. A class of stars known as Cepheid variables have a direct relationship between their maximum brightness and their period of variability. If you can measure the period, then you can calculate how bright the star would be at a given distance. By comparing this to how bright the star actually appears, you can calculate how far away it is. This relationship has long been used as a rung on the so-called cosmic distance ladder, allowing the distances of objects throughout the universe to be determined. Since Cepheids are the first rung on this ladder, and each rung on the ladder relies on the accuracy of the previous one, it is vital to much of cosmology that the calibration of Cepheid variability is accurate. But in a study carried out with the Spitzer Space Telescope, astronomers have discovered that the first star in the class, Delta Cephei, is losing mass in a stellar wind at a rate which alters its mass and creates a surrounding nebula, which affects the star's apparent brightness. 
Further observations showed that as many as 25% of cepheids are also losing mass at a significant rate, with implications for distance measurements that underpin much of modern cosmology. Even the smallest of stars turn out to be not so constant. A study of more than 215,000 red dwarf stars has found that even these old stars produce flares strong enough to disrupt the atmosphere of any orbiting planets. Originally observed in a survey to search for dimming due to transiting planets, the data were later searched for evidence of flaring, and produced several interesting results. The average flare duration was 15 minutes, and some flares increased the brightness of the star by 10%, making them brighter than flares on our own, much larger, sun. The astronomers also found that variable red dwarfs were about 1,000 times more likely to flare than non-variable red dwarfs, possibly due to their stronger magnetic fields. Thanks for that, Megan. Uh, next up we have an interview um, by Mark and Jen. They talked to Hiranya Pieris uh, about the early universe and the CMB. Dr. Hiranya Pieris has been giving a talk here at the Georgia Bank Centre for Astrophysics today. She's from University College London. Could you first tell us what sort of things you work on? So I'm a cosmologist. What that means in practice is that I study the very large-scale properties of the universe. So there are many astronomers that study things like galaxies and, and planets and so on. And for me, those are just points. Um, I want to know more the very big questions, which is, you know, how is the universe evolving? How did it begin? Where is it going? What does it contain in the very broad terms? My particular specialization is in early universe cosmology, which means that I try to figure out what powered the Big Bang. Okay, so how on earth do you look back to the early universe? I mean, that's 14 billion 14 years billion ago. 14 billion years ago, yes. So um, I study something called the cosmic microwave background, and that is the very earliest light that you can see in the universe. So it's like a baby picture of the universe, and it comes from when the universe was only about 400,000 years old. And as we said earlier, now it's about 14 billion years old. The early universe was a very, very hot and dense place, and it was so hot that everything was in the form of a plasma. There was no neutral atoms. As the universe expanded, it cooled, and the plasma turned into neutral atoms. So before this transition, all the light in the universe was bouncing around, it was bouncing against electrons uh, in something called Compton scattering. The moment that it became neutral, these light particles were suddenly free and they basically pervaded the universe. So we see this transition from going from being a plasma to being neutral in the cosmic microwave background. So the universe has continue to expand since then. So what we see now is very, very hot light, so gamma rays or something at the very early universe, having been stretched out by the expansion of the universe into the microwave band. So something that was very hot back then, we see now at about three degrees Kelvin, three degrees above absolute zero. The cosmic microwave background is when the universe went from being completely ionized to being completely neutral. There's another transition in, in the universe where it went from being dominated by radiation in terms of its energy density to being dominated by matter. So you described it in your talk, the cosmic microwave background or the CMB as being the fingerprint mm -hmm. of the early universe. So when we see that today, mm -hmm. how does that tell us about how the universe used to be at the time when it first formed? Mm -hmm. If you had microwave eyes and you could look at the cosmic microwave background, basically you would see a uniform light, a black body at a temperature of about 3 degrees Kelvin all over the sky. But if you could somehow turn up the contrast, and this is what cosmologists have done with experiments, you can actually see that there are little fluctuations of one part in 100,000 embedded on this 3 Kelvin black body. And those little fluctuations represent the initial perturbations that later under the action of gravity formed all the structure we see in the universe. All the galaxies, clusters of galaxies, everything originated from these tiny fluctuations in the early universe. So now it turns out that the statistical properties of these fluctuations have a direct connection 
to physics that are operating at really, really high energy scales. So we're talking about something called the gut scale, the grand unified theory scales. That's 10 to the 15 giga electron volts. So that's 10, 10 oh, a to one the, with 15 zeros after That's it. right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. But so very, well. very, <laughs> <laughs> so very, very high energies. You probably heard of the Large Hadron Collider. That's at about a TeV. So 10 to the 15 GeV is so much higher that we will never be able to directly test those energy scales with earthbound experiments. So looking at this very early light and seeing the little fluctuations imprinted on it might be the unique or one of the very few ways that we can test physics at such high energy scales. Yeah, I think that's about a million, million times the Large Hadron Collider energy. Yes, that's right. I can't even comprehend that. No. So the CMB is telling us something about the physics of the early universe that we can't derive from any experiments today. Mm -hmm. What is that physics like? I mean, what sort of things are thought to have happened before that time? One way that you can think about the evolution of the universe is to say that these little fluctuations were imprinted by some process. And as we said, the the process could have been at very, very high energy scales. So imagine that we decided we don't want to think about those physics and we're going to imagine that the universe started off radiation dominated and these fluctuations came from somewhere. Someone said the initial conditions. And then you can carry on and fit a lot of observations. And this is called the standard Big Bang model. And this is a model which has a lot of observational support and a lot of observational success. However, it turns out that we can't just assume the initial conditions were set by something which you're not going to describe and then follow the later evolution. And one of the reasons for that is actually obvious the moment you look at these little fluctuations that are in the CMB. The speed of light directly relates to how things can communicate with each other. If you have two things separated by some distance, the fastest way to exchange information between them is by exchanging light between them. So that's the fastest speed limit that we have in the universe. So if two things are so separated that they couldn't have communicated in a given time by exchanging light, then they were never in touch with each other. So it turns out that on the cosmic microwave background sky, if things are separated by more than about a degree, in the history of the universe, light could not have exchanged information between those points. Yet we see that the temperature of such points is the same to one part in 100,000. So it's extremely unlikely that just by chance, the temperature would be the same to such a high degree between those two points. So uh, that might be slightly puzzling, but let's draw an analogy to the following problem. Uh, You have a large class of students, and you've asked them to write an essay, and the essay must be 100,000 words long, okay? So they hand in their essays, and you find that all the essays are identical except for, say, one word out of 100,000 different And you know they must have communicated. There's no way they would have just come up with that by themselves. So in analogy, we know that those points, which are separated by more than a degree on the sky, must have communicated. So that immediately points to the fact that we need something other or extra to the standard Big Bang model. And that theory is called inflation. Uh, So this is not the same inflation that you have in the economy, um, but it's called inflation because uh, it basically postulates that the universe expanded by a factor of about 10 to the 30 in a tiny instant, something like 10 to the minus 42 to 10 to the minus 35 seconds. So in that time, it expanded by a huge factor. And if that happened, it solves this problem that I I discussed earlier called the horizon problem, and it also solves many others. But what's particularly compelling about this theory is that at the same time, it tells you how these little fluctuations, the one part in 100,000 fluctuations, originated. That's quite difficult to understand as well, and that's quite difficult to get your head around. So we're saying Mm -hmm. that the the whole space of the universe itself... Mm -hmm just suddenly inflated like a balloon, Yes, but but incredibly quickly. Yes. So it sounds like a huge extrapolation of physics, but we actually see that this process is happening today. 
it seems that today the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. And this is called dark energy. So it's an observational reality today. So we don't think that the same process happened during inflation. Clearly, the same effect happened during inflation, but not the same process because the energy scales that we're talking about are so different. But on the other hand, we know the universe can accelerate in its expansion because we see it happening today. Do we have any physical idea of why a period of inflation occurred? Is it something that's contained within any of our existing theories of space and the universe? It requires an extrapolation of existing theories. And in particular, it requires a very funny kind of exotic physics, which gives rise to a negative pressure. So all of the components of the universe that we know about today, except for the dark energy that I mentioned briefly, has a zero or positive pressure. So it's sort of pushing outwards. Yeah, it's pushing outwards. So the ratio between the pressure and the energy density of whatever fluid that drove inflation has to be negative. It's, It's very hard to imagine because it's such a thing that's so removed from our, you know, everyday existence, right? Perhaps the best way to think about it is if you take a flute and you, instead of blowing out, kind of pull in on it, mm-hmm. something like that. But that's probably a very bad analogy. I think uh, it's one of those things that for which there is no analogy because it's so beyond our everyday existence. But in terms of physical equations, what it needs is to have a negative uh, pressure to energy density ratio. And there's a thing called the scalar field which can implement this kind of thing. So implementing something like a scalar field, I think, was observationally motivated because we see that this acceleration in the expansion rate must happen. And to get an accelerating phase, you need this negative pressure. And this is the thing that can give negative pressure. I think we're getting into scary physics now. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So if we move on, I wanted to talk a bit about the instruments that you use to study the CMB. I know you were very involved with WMAP, which was the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe. Can you tell us a bit about your work on that? Yes. Uh, So the cosmic microwave background was first discovered in 1965, And that was a Nobel Prize winning discovery. Fantastic. After that, there were some ground-based experiments. And then the first satellite was called COBE, Cosmic something explorer. Background. Background, Cosmic background observer. I think it was CO for Cosmic. I love astronomy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the first satellite. And that detected these fluctuations that I talked about that we see in the CMB. Uh, And that's also a Nobel Prize winning discovery. The second cosmic microwave background satellite was called WMAP. I say was because it has just been turned off. Very sad. That was launched in 2001. And took data for about eight or nine years. It was the first time that the CMB fluctuations had been mapped at high resolution because Kobe had quite a bad resolution, uh, just enough to detect the fluctuations but not to really explore their properties. So that was actually quite revolutionary in the field of cosmology because for the first time we had data which was very, very precise from the CMB that was characterized very well because when you're in space, you can control the systematics very well of the experiments. It's in a very stable, cold environment. So we had an experiment which was producing data which was very, very well understood, and it could be used to compare with cosmological models. That, as well as some other data, led to what's called the era of precision cosmology. Before that, cosmology used to be quite an uncertain science, And now we know the properties of our universe to about a percent precision. And WMAP was one of the experiments that made that possible. I think there was a famous spectrum that you got from WMAP, wasn't there? I remember writing an essay on that in school and (laughs) saying saying to my teacher (laughs) that this graph showed the prediction and the observation, but they're Mm -hmm. so close that it's only one line and she she'd marked me down because she thought that I'd labelled it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That's very funny. Yeah, it's actually really stunning to see that what what you're talking about is the the power spectrum, which possibly a scary physics phrase, so maybe moving 50 long. (laughs) Uh, It describes the properties of these fluctuations and the measurements were so precise 
when you plotted the model, you could barely see the measurement errors. When I started in school, cosmology was completely uncertain. And, you know, it was a turning point, I think. Yeah. So are the things that we see then in the CMB power spectrum telling us that the universe seems to be the way we think it is? Does it agree with the models of inflation and expanding universe? It certainly agrees with the model of the expanding universe, the hot Big Bang, extremely well. And inflation, given that it's a big extrapolation of physics, as I mentioned before, has been extremely successful in matching the observational data. And there are a whole number of points in which there were non-trivial predictions made by inflation, and all of those so far have been satisfied. Of course, in science, we don't prove theories. We seek to disprove them. So people are doing even greater tests of this model with new data from a new satellite called Planck, which is a, a European satellite. It's the first time that there has been a European CMB satellite. And this is right now taking data at precision and sensitivity and resolution never before attempted. It's way out, well beyond the orbit of the moon at the L2 Lagrange point, And it's scanning the sky from there. It's already scanned the sky completely once and it's doing the second sky survey now. The data is beautiful. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) We've covered Planck before, but the Lagrange points are kind of balance points between the gravity of the Earth and the Sun. So Planck is constantly shielded by the Earth. Is that right? Well, basically, what you don't want it is for it to point at either the Earth or the Sun or any bright body because we want such a stable environment to measure something just three degrees above absolute zero. So on a completely different topic, some of our listeners might remember an interview with a photographer called Max Alexander that Stuart did at the National Astronomy Meeting earlier this year, and you were actually the subject of one of his photos. So <laughs> I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and how I mean how did you get involved with that staff with Uh well he called me one day and said uh can I take a photograph of you for an astronomy outreach project funded by SDFC which is the funding council that funds astronomy in the UK And I thought he was just going to come and take a picture and leave, right? (laughs) And I'm quite a shy person. I don't like my photo to be taken. So I was like, uh. But uh, I agreed to do it because it's very good to do outreach and it's very good to show that people doing astronomy are not just kind of boffins in white coats with (laughs) wild hair, with beards. So I agreed to do it. It turned out that it was bit off a bit more than I could chew in a sense because I didn't know what this kind of photographer how they work and so on. And what I thought was something where he comes and takes my picture and leaves turned out, I think it was about five hours of holding one-handed a television which was plugged in and tuned to nothing. So it was seeing the static. And that that static, about 1% of that is cosmic microwave background. Wow. Yeah, I had to stand on a chair or something as well. There were all these (laughs) lights in your face and there was a blackboard behind me and he was really, really upset about a tiny little reflection of the lights (laughs) on the blackboard that I couldn't see even. So it took a very long time and I've developed massive muscles on my right arm now. (laughs) So that was a photograph of you and the CMB together. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And what you're talking about is if you detune it, the TV from any channel, the sort of black and white snow that you see. That's right, yes. So I remember a cosmology professor that taught me once telling us what you were saying about 1% or something came from the CMB, which I think is amazing. Yeah. Um, He said it might not look like much, but it's more interesting than most of what you got on television anyway. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I guess that's a shame with switching to digital is that in future generations won't ever be able to experience that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm not even sure that current TVs can be detuned in this way. So I don't know. <laughs> Being a student, I've still got quite an old TV. Right. <laughs> well, I think we're out of time. So thank you very much for talking to us today and good luck with all your future research. Thanks very much. Thanks for that, Jen and Mark. That was a great interview. And up next, we have another interview by Jen. She talked to Yan Kami about Buckyballs. So it's the Christmas party here at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics and we've randomly managed to grab Dr Jan Kami from the University of Western Ontario for an impromptu interview. Welcome to the Jodcast. Well, nice to be here. Pleasant surprise at Christmas party. <laughs> it's not the normal thing we do here. Always. So you had quite an exciting discovery recently and we actually covered it in the August news, August 2010. So could you tell us about this and, and what you found? 
Absolutely, yes. We um, discovered buckyballs in space. Um, buckyballs are these these football-shaped, well, in North America, I have to say soccer-shaped, but here I can say <laughs> football, right? So football-shaped yes. molecules of, of, of 60 carbon atoms. Um, they were only discovered on Earth in 1985 in laboratory experiments. And so people have been looking for these these uh, fullerenes, these buckyballs in space since then, because they're very stable molecules, and, and we believe that they would be ideally suited to survive the harsh conditions in the interstellar medium. Um, but up to now, we, we didn't find them, and we happened to find them and, and be able to prove that, that indeed what we're seeing are buckyballs. So the interstellar medium, that's the gas and dust in between stars that's right that's it's not empty space it kind of looks like that sometimes but but in between the stars there's plenty of gas and dust um and in fact where we found the buckyballs was was not really in between the stars we found them in a planetary nebula that's that's an old star pretty much what the sun will be in five six billion years um old stars that kind of shed their outer layers um and, and in that that material there's all sorts of chemistry going on for me, in this case, apparently, apparently buckyballs. What instruments did you use to find these? How did you go about searching for them? We used the infrared spectrograph on board the Spitzer Space Telescope. Um, and in this case, the observations that we used were part of the Spitzer archive. So the observations were done in 2005. But the data has been publicly available since 2006. And so we pretty much just grabbed the data from the archive. And you just got lucky. Uh, well, yes, in a sense we got lucky, but luck favors the prepared mind. So, um. so buckyballs in space, very exciting. What does it lead to? What is the the bigger picture with with finding them? How does it change our view of space? That's a very good question. Um, if if we would only find buckyballs in one planetary nebula, then then it would just be a very cute, interesting find, and then that would be it. Um, interestingly enough, since we found these buckyballs and published it um, over the summer. Um, these buckyballs have now been found in many more planetary nebula, including in other galaxies. But they have also been found in reflection nebula, in, in um, our corona borealis stars, star-forming regions, in the diffuse interstellar medium. So now they have been found pretty much everywhere. So, so they really are omnipresent, very abundant um, everywhere you look, pretty much. So that in itself, of course, is very interesting because because it might mean that we now have found a way that we can actually probe circumstellar and interstellar environments. We can use these, these spectral signatures of the fullerenes to determine temperatures, for instance, which might be very useful. Um, and there's other molecules that we can use for the same sort of purposes, but it seems that these fullerenes are a bit more stable, so we might be able to use them as probes in more extreme environments. And what do you exactly mean by stable? They survive. I mean, I mean, space is a very unforgiving environment. If you go out there, it's not a healthy place to be. There's, there's <laughs> all sorts of, of, of cosmic rays uh, being shot at you. It's, it's, it's a low-density environment. Um, um, so you need to be very strong to survive there. And so it's, it's, in space, it's really survival of the fittest. And only those molecules can survive that, that have what it takes to, to survive. So they need to be able to stand uh, high doses of, of UV radiation, for instance. And so these buggy balls are ideally suited uh, for that sort, of, that sort of situations. And do other elements form these buckyball shapes, or is it just carbon that does them? There are buckyballs that have been constructed from, from um, other elements. Um, however, we don't think that in space those would actually occur what you need in space is is you make molecules from from whatever materials are available uh, from all all materials that are available carbon is is the ideal candidate because it's a very social type of, of chemical element it likes to to make bonds with all sorts of other species that doesn't hold for many other elements like like silicon or sulfur for instance and at the same time um, um, if you want to be a survivor you need to have very strong bonds and carbon carbon bonds for instance are extremely strong for, for that sort of purposes so carbon has the advantage that at the same time there's a lot of it there's there's much more carbon than silicon and sulfur for instance and at the same time if you form a bond with carbon um, there's a much higher, higher chance that you will have a strong bond and stable molecule so on earth all life forms are based on carbon is a buckyball some way that you could maybe get life in space or is that just me going crazy now 
Well, you would certainly not be the only one that's going crazy about this. Um, <laughs> there's there's a well-known theory called the, the panspermia theory. It says that that a lot of the the ingredients for life, you know, even even maybe uh, microbes and bacteria, were brought to Earth from space. Um, I think most astronomers think that something something maybe at, at a smaller or lower level is is going on where a lot of the complex chemicals that we need for life on Earth are brought in things like amino acids, for instance. Um, if you look at meteorites, in meteorites we have found 80 amino acids, whereas all life on Earth only need 20, and then those 20 we found in meteorites as well. So that kind of simplifies um, um, what you need to do on the early Earth to actually form life if you have all these, these complex building blocks available. And there's been some suggestions that you could lock up in these these buckyball cages you could lock up some of these complex molecules but the presence of these buckyballs themselves they're fairly complex complex structure right i mean it's mother nature building a football from from carbon so that shows that that in space sometimes it is actually easier to form complex molecules than than it might be on earth and that if you bring them in on meteorites or, or comets then that might might make it much easier to make even more complex molecules on earth so you say you have these complex molecules within the buckyball. So is a buckyball just the shell of a football, or is it a, a full three D structure? Well, it's it, it is it is technically the shell. If, if on a buckyball, if on a football, you would replace all the the, the vertices by a carbon atom. That's that's when you'd have a C sixty okay. molecule. So that would be a bit of a, it's it's a fullerene cage. It's called. Yeah. And you can lock things up in in the C sixty cage, but but it cannot be too big. I mean, I mean, yeah. obviously it has to be smaller than than the football. Um, but so you can lock up atoms and small molecules in there, in principle. So what's the future for this research? Where where are you hoping this leads? Well, this is this is the beginning. Um, we've been searching for these these buckyballs for a long time. Now that we've found them, we can we can start seeing how they form. Um, um, are they indeed as, as as stable and abundant in space as, as we we think they should be? And, and let's let's study their role, especially in interstellar chemistry. I think I think certainly for this place, that's that's kind of an interesting avenue. Um, if you look at C60, for instance, if you um, if you ionize it, if you make C60 plus, then pretty much whatever you shoot at a buckyball, any atom or any molecule will react on the outer surface of these these buckyballs, as you will make new compounds, foreign compounds that that might lead. For instance, one of the things you can make on the uh, surface of a buckyball is H2. So that would be a process that could work in space. If you have fullerenes, you have H2 formation on the surface and you eject the H2, that's that's a um, um, chemical route that you could use to form molecular hydrogen. And probably there's many more um, uh, complex chemical networks that you could think of to build on the surface of a buckyball that we haven't studied yet. So about typically 1% of the cosmic carbon is in these buckyballs. So for a single molecule, that's actually a large amount, amount of carbon. So uh, it's certainly something that we need to that we need to look at. Well, good luck for the future, and thank you for taking time out from the party to come and talk to us today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And the beer was gone, anyways. <laughs> thank you. Wow, Jen, that was great. You really are an interview machine. Two from you this month. Yeah, I just can't stop it. Actually, Libby's being more of an interview machine than I am. She was just interviewing and interviewing and interviewing at an Alma meeting that was in Manchester in December. So the next few episodes are going to have a lot of interviews from Libby. So now we get onto the part of the show where we talk about all of the odds and ends that we can't fit in anywhere else. So Evan, what have you got for us this time? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about Beetlejuice. It's been in the news recently, um, a bit of hype and scaremongering about it. So Beetlejuice, that's the top left star in Orion. Yeah, it's the top left one. It's yellow. You can, it's yellow. You can kind of make it out with your eyes. If you live in Australia, it's the bottom right one. Yeah, I kind of had to turn my head upside down to picture that. Also, you said that you see it as yellow, but I think most people see it as red, so I guess you have weird eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, a star that's about 20 times the mass of the sun. It's 600 light years away. And when it uh, dies, it's going to go supernova. It's going to go bang, and it's going to leave a neutral star. And that's great. That's but, great for you because you hope it will turn into a pulsar. Yes, exactly. And everybody <laughs> loves pulsars. That's the official Jodcast line, actually. No comment. Okay, well, why am I talking about it? Well, as I said, it's it's been around for 10 million years, and it is going to explode uh, soon in astronomical terms, but perhaps not soon in human terms. Okay, so there's been some uh, stories about Beetlejuice in, in the news recently, um, and they've been a little bit misleading or slightly in error. <laughs> um, 
as an example, I thought I would compare it to the uh, supernova that happened in the Crab Nebula. That happened like a thousand years ago. And the supernova was so bright that people were able to see it during the day. It was recorded by many people on Earth. And for those of you who know about magnitudes, that means that the star we reckon was about minus seven in magnitude. That's pretty bright. So if we compare that to other things, magnitudes are weird because the more yes. negative, the brighter it is. Yes. It's like golf. Negative is better. <laughs> so, for instance, a bright star has magnitude like zero. A star that you can just about see has magnitude six. The sun is minus 26. So very negative, but obviously it's very, very bright. Yeah. So when this, when the supernova happened in the Crab Nebula, it was about minus seven. And the Crab Nebula is about 6,000 light years away. I said Betelgeuse is 600 light years away. So it's 10 times nearer. So that means it's going to be 100 times brighter when it goes bang. Right. So and pretty bright. Pretty bright. So that corresponds to being maybe five magnitudes brighter. So it might be like minus 12. And to put that into some context, the full moon is like minus 13. So it's basically going to be as bright as the full moon. But not as big. But not as big, no. It will still just look like a star, just a very bright one. It won't have, won't take up a lot of space in the sky. So why has it been in the news recently? Well, for some reason, I said that it's going to explode soon in astronomical terms, but for some reason, uh, some uh, unscrupulous journalists have decided to link it somehow to the uh, Mayan world is going to end in 2012 kind of stories and s somehow have combine those two to to uh, infer that Betelgeuse is definitely going to go supernova in the next year. In fact, it was guaranteed by some daily newspapers in the UK. We shall mention no names. We shall mention no names. But the following lines were actually in, well, pr written by professional journalists, um, such as, it will turn night into day, there will be two suns, just <laughs> so like in Star Wars, and things like that. And that isn't really true. Right, so when we say soon... Are we talking 100 years, 1,000 years? No, we're talking like 100,000 years. Right. So the chances of it going bang in the next year are like 100,000 to 1. So do you reckon we can find any bookies to take that bet on? I'd like to. In fact, I'd like to offer 100 to 1 to anyone that it won't happen <laughs> if anyone wants to bet a pound with me. So if you want to place a bet with Evan, you can get in touch with him through the usual channels on the Jogcast. Yes, get in touch and I will take your money. <laughs> awesome. So the random piece of news that I've got to share with everyone is about a NASA solar sail called NanoSail D. I'm not quite sure why it's called D. I don't know if there's an A, B or C before it. So let's start with what a solar sail is. So it's basically kind of, from the pictures, it looks like a sheet of foil, a massive sheet of foil. And particles from the sun hit it and accelerate it forwards. And I can't explain it any better than that. I will put a link in the show notes to a website that can explain that far better than I can. That's good enough for me. Yeah. This NanoSail D started off really small. It was like a cube satellite. And it got sent up, I think, back in November. And then they lost contact with it. And they didn't know what had happened. And then at the beginning of January, suddenly signals started coming from it again. And ham radio people, I don't know what the technical term for them is, hammers? Hammers. Yeah, I like hammers. Hammers. All over the world were asked to... um to observe it, to get the signal from it so that they could help NASA track it. So then this NanoSail D actually separated from the rocket that took it up. And then on the 20th of January, it unfurled. So this is a 10 square meter sail, okay, which is pretty big in space. So in NASA's words, it's the first ever 100 square foot solar sail in low Earth orbit. And solar sails are quite a new technology that quite a few people are testing out. So we've reported before that the Japanese sent up a solar sail with the Akatsuki mission. Um, so now NASA and spaceweather.com have joined forces to run a competition to get amateur astronomers to take pictures of NanoSail D and send them in. And first prize is $500, second prize is $200, and third prize is $100. So what you will see if you go out to look for it is like an iridium flare, but very bright. So when the sunlight catches it just right, you see this flash. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they know quite how bright it's going to get, but somewhere I read that it's going to be about five to seven times brighter than Venus. So Venus is up in the morning sky at the moment. Right. 
quite bright. They're pretty bright. So they want images just from cameras, from telescopes, anything. And it's going to actually help them with their scientific research because no one really knows what happens to a solar cell once it's in space. How does it degrade? Um, what happens to the material? So if a lot of people take pictures, it's a lot better than NASA just trying to get their pictures themselves. So this contest is open now. And it's running until Nano Sail D re-enters the atmosphere and burns up. And that's going to be in around April or May 2011. They seem quite vague about what's going to happen. I guess they don't know. I guess they don't know. Yeah. So we'll put links to all of that on the show notes. And if you do take any nice pictures, please also send them to us because we'd like to see them. Yes. Get snapping. That's pretty cool. You get There's potential for loads of nice pictures and you're actually doing useful science. Yeah. And to tell you what else you can see in the night sky while you're out looking for NanoCell D, here's Ian Morrison with the Northern Night Sky for February. The night sky for February 2011. On a couple of previous of these, I've uh, mentioned good books to help you learn your way around the sky. This time, let me just try and promote a wonderful piece of free software. It's called Stellarium, S-T-E-L-L. A-R-I-U-M and you can find it just by putting Solarium into Google and you can download it as I've said for free and it gives you a wonderful representation of the night sky and you can tell it anywhere in the world and any time you like. I used it at Christmas time to show what the sky was like at the time of the birth of Christ when I was talking about the star of Bethlehem and it worked absolutely perfectly. So do try it. It's quite easy to learn how to use it. There are help pages as well, but it's pretty obvious what you have to do to make it work. If you zoom in, for example, to the planets like Saturn or Jupiter, you can actually see the configuration of the satellites, where they will be precisely on a particular time on a particular night. And if you actually look at the night sky page, just put night sky into Google, that I produce each month, you'll find that most of the images that I actually make to go with the little highlights are all produced starting with a Stellarium image, which I may well then play around a bit just to make it more useful. So I do certainly commend that to you. Well, we have this wonderful night sky when it's clear after sunset. We have Jupiter setting in the west. Orion is fairly high in the south. If you take the three stars of its belt, Work upwards, you come first to the Hyades cluster with an interloper, the star Aldebaran, not part of the cluster but in the same direction. Carry on again, of course, and you come to the lovely Pleiades cluster. little hazy spot with your eyes, but in fact sharp-eyed people can see several stars there on a dark, transparent night. Binoculars will show you a large number, and it's a lovely thing to observe in a small telescope. The moon's going to be, in fact, uh, just above the Hyades cluster on the 12th of February. If you look below the central star of Orion's belt, you see the sword of Orion, and in there we have a little misty glow, which is the Orion Nebula. It's a birthplace of stars, a sort of a stellar nursery, and it's lit by the light of a number of very bright stars called the trapezium at its heart, like holding up a lamp in a fog, it sort of lights up the dust and gas around it. This is a lovely thing to look at with a telescope. Coming down to the lower left of those three stars, you come to Sirius. If you work your way up to the left, you pass that very bright star, the red star Betelgeuse. It's a red supergiant. Its size is about the same as the size of the orbit of Jupiter, so that's pretty big. You keep on going, you come to Gemini with its bright stars, Castor and Pollux down to the upper right of Castor at the bottom the feet really of Gemini is a very nice cluster called M35 and the moon's going to be right on top of that in fact on the 14th of the month there's then quite a blank area of sky to the left of Gemini it's the constellation of Cancer the Crab there's a very nice little cluster very wide open cluster called the Beehive Cluster or Prisopy which is right at the heart again it looks a bit like a misty glow with your eyes but binoculars will show it as quite a widely spaced group of stars. It's right on the ecliptic, which means that the planets pass through it quite often. We have some very nice views of a planet adjacent to the beehive cluster. The moon's going to be there, in fact, on the 16th of the month, getting fuller. And you'll see rising over in the east the constellation of Leo the Lion with its bright star Regulus. 
and you shouldn't forget to look towards the north when you can usually see the constellation of Ursa Major, the Great Bear, and the Plough, which are the brighter of the stars. With binoculars, or even with your eyes, look at the middle star of the handle of the plough, and uh, you'll see that's a double. With a small telescope, you'll actually see that the brighter of the two is itself a double. OK, let's move on to the planets. Well, we don't have too many to talk about because a couple of them are actually behind the sun. But let's start with Jupiter. As I mentioned, it's now in fact setting in the western sky after sunset. It's still at magnitude minus 2.2, so you can't really miss it. At the beginning of February, it sets at about uh, 9.12 in the evening. But by the end of the month, it's an hour earlier, at about 8.15. And again, if you see it at the beginning of the month, it'll be 30 degrees elevation, which isn't too bad. But by the end of the month, when it gets dark, it'll only be about 15 degrees elevation. Not so good. So have a last good look of Jupiter towards the end of its apparition this time. It's been well worth observing because, as I've mentioned before, it lost its south equatorial belt last year. That appears to be coming back. It's not at all prominent yet, but a good thing to look out. And maybe next time we see it, when it's been round the back of the sun, we'll actually see the belt back again. But at the same time, the great red spot has become slightly more intense, making it easier to see. And of course, a small telescope will easily pick up the four Galilean moons, Io, Europa, Callisto and Ganymede, as they weave their way around it. In fact, a very thin, waxing crescent moon passes close to Jupiter on the 6th and 7th of the month. Well, the other giant planet, Saturn, and that's now becoming a late evening object, arising at uh, 10.30pm at the beginning of the month, and by 9 o'clock at the end. It starts with a magnitude of plus 0.6 and gets slightly brighter through the month. Its brightness is now increasing somewhat compared to last year because the rings are beginning to open out. They're now at about 10 degrees from the line of sight. So with a small telescope, you have a chance of seeing the Cassini division between the A and the B rings of Saturn's lovely ring system. A small telescope or even binoculars will also show Titan, the brightest of the satellites, and I'll come back to Saturn in the highlights coming up shortly. Well, Mercury passes behind the Sun on February the 25th, so that's not going to be visible this month. And Mars lies behind the Sun, which is called Superior Conjunction, directly behind the Sun, on the 4th of February. So again, we're not going to see that. So that just leaves Venus. It's a pre-dawn object. It's been very, very prominent in the morning sky over the last month or so. It's now dropping back a bit towards the sun, but it still rises a couple of hours before the sun. And as the eclipse, it makes quite a steep angle to the horizon at this time of the year. It's still fairly high up in the sky. As Venus is moving further away during the month, its angular size drops from 19 arc seconds down to about 16 arc seconds and you might well think that would make it less bright. But at the same time, its illumination, that's the percentage of the surface that's actually illuminated, increases from 61% to 71%. So the magnitude only drops just 0.1 of a magnitude during the month. And that's a nice thing about Venus. It stays much the same brightness from about minus 4 to minus 4.5 for much of its apparition, as when it's furthest away from us, and so has a smaller angular size, more of the disk is illuminated, so giving a roughly constant illuminated area. So it stays the same brightness. So finally, what about some highlights? Not a vast amount this month that's actually very, very special in comparison to the end of December and the beginning of January, which were quite exciting. But at the very end of the month, and actually even better, on the 1st of March, Venus is nicely close to the crescent waning moon. The thin moon is seen to the right on the 28th, but a bit down to the left and a bit nearer, in fact, on the 1st of March. So, nice thing to look at at the very end of the month. Well, occasionally I try and give you a pointer to try and spot an asteroid. And this month, the asteroid I've chosen is number seven. That means it was the seventh asteroid to be discovered. It's called Iris. And it's, in fact, passing quite close to the fifth magnitude star, 8 Cancri, that's in the constellation of Cancer the Crab, on the 5th of February. And I put in a chart that shows where it will be over the first week or so of the month. 
Given a dark, transparent night, that's what we always want, you should be able to spot it with binoculars. Obviously, a telescope will help a lot. And the idea is to look at that area and then look at it again just a few hours later and you should see it that it's moved. Don't leave it too late. The days around full moon on the 18th obviously would make it very hard to see. But there is a star chart to actually show you how to find it. You basically start with Procyon, the brightest star of Canis Minor, and work up to the left into the constellation of Cancer. So that might be worth having a look at. On the 16th of February, if you don't mind being up at about 1.30am, or preferably a little bit before, you will see, as far as I can tell precisely at 01.30, the fifth magnitude star, 81 Geminorum, that's up to the left of Orion, will be occulted by the leading and also dark limb of the Moon. So essentially, it just suddenly disappears, and that's a rather nice thing to see. And obviously you don't need to know where to look, all you do is to look at the Moon and look at the upper left-hand side of it. And just before 01.30, you should see the star fifth magnitude dead easily, and you'll probably need binoculars actually, unless you're in a very dark location, partly because the glare of the Moon makes it hard to see the fainter stars nearby. But with binoculars, you should easily spot it disappear, and again, with a small telescope, it should be a rather nice thing to see. If you have a telescope then it's possible to have a look at some of the moons of Saturn. There's one moon, as I've said, Titan, that's easy to find. But if you've got a six-inch or greater aperture telescope, why not have a look for the next three brightest? They're called Dione, Rhea and Tethys, and they're about tenth magnitude. So you do need a telescope. On the 5th of February, they make a very nice little triangle on the eastern side of Saturn, and Titan is up to the right, quite separate. So that would be a nice little grouping of satellites to have a look at. I've been trying to get you to observe the moon a bit over the last few months, and on the 14th of February, that would be a very nice time to look at the two great lunar craters, which are Tycho and Copernicus. Tycho's towards the bottom of the moon in a densely cratered region called the Southern Lunar Highlands, relatively young, it's only about 108 million years old, very rough surface. In fact, I observed that by radar way back in the late 60s, early 70s. We think it was formed by the impact of one of the remnants of an asteroid that gave rise to, in fact, a number of asteroids. They're called the Baptistina family. In fact, another asteroid originating from the same breakup may well have caused the Chicxulub crater 65 million years ago and that's the one that's just off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico which I visited just a few weeks ago. It's got a diameter of 85 kilometers nearly five kilometers deep so that's quite something. At full moon you can actually see the rays of material that were ejected when it was formed arcing across the surface. In contrast, Copernicus is about 800 million years old and lies in the eastern Oceanus Procolarum, just beyond the end of the Apennine Mountains, so it's easier to spot. This is 93 kilometers wide and nearly 4 kilometers deep. It's a classic terrace crater, and there's some lovely pictures you can find on the web, or have a look with your own telescope if you can. And both can easily be seen with binoculars. So there we go. Have a good month's observing. We still have plenty of night time to see when it's clear. Thanks for that, Ian. We now have John Field to tell us about what's in the southern sky. Kia ora and welcome to the February Jodcast from Carter Observatory. Our February night sky sees Jupiter slip lower into our twilight sky, leaving us bereft of planets until Saturn rises in the east around midnight at the start of the month. Orion is almost due north after sunset, and each evening it will slide lower towards the western horizon as the month progresses. Taurus along with Pleiades or Matariki will be lower in the west and will set by midnight. The eastern sky is bereft of bright stars until the rising of Scorpius nearer dawn after midnight. Last month we toured some of the sites near Gemini. This month we will visit the fainter constellations of Cancer, Leo and Virgo. Cancer appears as a square of stars with a faint star cluster called the Precipi or Manger, also known as the Beehive Cluster. Greek mythology associated the crab in the legend of Orion. The crab was sent to assist the scorpion in his battle with Orion. Unfortunately, the crab was crushed in the fight, and he was placed in the heavens. 
Earlier, this constellation appears to have been associated with the Egyptians and the annual appearance of the mating crabs on the Nile Delta. The beehive cluster is best seen through binoculars or a wide-field telescope at low power, and over 40 stars may be visible. The cluster has a similar age and motion to the Hyades cluster, the V-shaped form in the head of Taurus. This implies that they may have formed out the same cloud of dust and gas. Being far from the plane of the Milky Way, the following zodiac constellations of Leo and Virgo are prime targets for galaxy hunters. Leo rises in the evening, followed by Virgo around midnight. Galaxies come in a variety of shapes, sizes and brightnesses. The two brightest in our southern skies are the large and small Magellanic clouds. Galaxies come in a variety of shapes, sizes and brightnesses. The two brightest in our southern skies are the large and small Magellanic clouds. These appear as two hazy cloud-like patches that are circumpolar from New Zealand. Both are irregular in shape and the LMC at 10% and SMC at 5% the mass of a galaxy and both are about 170 to 200,000 light-years away. A more challenging galaxy is Centaurus A, which is 4 degrees north of the globular cluster Omega Centauri in the constellation of Centaurus. Centaurus A can be seen in binoculars as a haze with a dark band running across it. This dark band has given rise to its nickname as the Hamburger Galaxy. The brightest galaxy visible in the northern sky is the Andromeda Galaxy. It is visible low on our northern horizon during our spring in the southern hemisphere. I used to be able to see this from my home garden as a faint haze for about an hour during the night until a neighbour's tree grew too high. Andromeda is estimated to be similar in mass to our Milky Way galaxy and around 2.5 million light years away. The galaxies in Leo and Virgo are much more distant and many times fainter than those other galaxies mentioned. But many are within the range of binoculars and small telescopes on a moonless night well away from city lights. Leo appears as an upside down sickle in our night sky and with a bright star Dinobola marking the lion's tail. Leo was associated with the twelve tasks of Hercules in Greek mythology. It was a lion that had fallen from the moon onto the earth and was invulnerable to earthly weapons. Hercules jumped onto the back of the lion and strangled it. Leo contains many bright galaxies, Messier 65 and 66, along with 95 and 96. Messier 105 and NGC 3628 form part of the Leo triplet of galaxies. The Messier objects were discovered by Charles Messier during the 1770s and 1780s during his hunt for comet-like objects. The NGC, or New General Catalogue, was formed in the 1880s by John Dreyer from observations by astronomers including William and John Herschel. Rising after Leo is Virgo, the second largest constellation in the night sky. Virgo is marked by the bright star Spica and a faint but easily seen rectangle of stars. A brighter object in Virgo is the planet Saturn, appearing as a yellow star similar in brightness to Spica. Virgo was seen as the harvest goddess in Greek and Roman mythology. The Virgo cluster is a group of up to 2,000 galaxies whose centre is about 54 million light years away. It is part of the larger local supercluster of which our galaxy is an outlying member. One of the brighter galaxies in this cluster is the giant elliptical M87. At magnitude 9.5, this galaxy is a good target for small telescopes appearing as a haze. Venus and Mercury are in the morning sky with Venus higher below Antares and Scorpius. Mercury is in the morning twilight sky rising about an hour before the sun, but will move close to the sun and by mid-month will be lost in the sun's glare. Thank you very much for listening to the February Jobcast. We look forward to seeing you next month. Thanks for that, John. And that brings us almost to the end of the show, but first of all, we need to round up your feedback. So first up, we've had a postcard from Jeff, a.k.a. Earth Unit, from sunny New Zealand. And there's a lovely postcard with the picture of the Bay of Islands on the front, and I'm very jealous of him listening to the January edition on a beach in the sunshine at 27 degrees. Well, I don't see how that's any better than listening to the Jodcast in Manchester at minus five degrees. In the snow. In the snow. Yeah. Yeah. Hope you're having a good time if you're still there. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, also, we've got an email from Jason Hill. He uh, was pointing us towards the XKCD comic, and in particular the Stingray Nebula one. Uh, this is a great comic, and you should all look at it. We're, we'll have some links in the show notes. It's very, very, very funny. On the forum, I'm not sure of the last time we did a hello to new members, so in case we missed you out, hi to Mark C., Pete Uplink, and Dave Moulton for joining on the forum. And... Mark C. left us a very nice comment about the January Extra show. And my favourite quote from it is, Although Dara was lightly leg-pulling at Evan, I thought he did really well for his debut interview. And I think that's true. Uh, well done. 
Thank you, Jen. And thank you, Mark C. On Twitter, we'd like to thank everyone who tweeted about the show, especially everyone who retweeted about the celebrity edition. We need to get better at Twitter feedback. We just Indeed don't Indeed we do. We're rubbish. Yeah. But we'll get better. Promise. We, we promise. Um, we have some new Jod picks because Libby is wandering around in Taiwan now. Don't forget, any of you who finds yourself in weird and wonderful locations, take a picture of yourself with a Jodcast t-shirt and send it to us. Over on Facebook, uh, Katie Calvert has apparently not been able to sleep recently, so he's been catching up on Jodcasts. As an aid to help her sleep? I'm hoping not. I think it's she can't sleep, therefore she is catching up on Jodcasts, rather than she can't sleep, so she's catching up on Jodcasts to fall asleep. Let's interpret it that way anyways. Yeah, that's the best way to interpret it. Um, she also wants to know if we're doing another Jogcast live. And we've had a few questions about that. Um, the official line is, Meh. <laughs> We don't know, basically. Um, it was really fun, but it was a lot of hard work. And maybe. You have to wait and see. Also, thanks to Chris Giltnane, who said that the January Extra was one of the best episodes ever and brilliant. We like that kind of feedback. Yeah, Chris, you're a smart guy. <laughs> and if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. Or on the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Facebook at jogcast.net slash Facebook. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. We're on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And we're even on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. Lots of ways to get in touch. And that brings us to the end of the show. So all that's left to say is thanks to Haranya Pires and Jan Kami for being interviewed. And we should also say thank you to everyone who came to Jod Pub too. It was very fun. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the cake again. The editors for this show were Jen Gupta, Megan Argo, Claire Bretherton and Mark Perver. So until next time, Jod on. Jod on. Bye. <laughs> This is Dara Breen. Thank you for joining me in listening to Jodcast. Until next time, you take care of yourself and each other.